Hi, I'm Ken, and this is Arbitrarily Deterministic on KeithFM.com, the show where I talk to the people who blur the lines between art, technology, and popular culture. Almost all the time, the people I talk to are people I admire for some reason or another, and today is no different. But before we get into that, I want to say, if you're listening to this on KeithFM.com, we exist solely um, on the goodness of others. So if you can find it in your heart to give, give. Just give all that you've got. If you've got a Tez wallet, you can drop some Tez to I don't like podcasts.tez and I will donate that to the radio station in your name, which I've done already for a few people, such as Pixelwank and Will and Matt W., and so to name a few. Yeah, anything that uh, we talk about today that happens to deal with any financialized product is not a financial uh, advice in any way. It's just conversation. So without further ado, today my guest is Connie Bakshi. Hi, Connie. Hi. So, Connie, why do I have you on the show today? Um, I I don't know your intentions, but I certainly look forward to finding them out. Um, but uh, <laughs> I'm um, I've, I've made my rounds on Twitter and in Web three, so some of you may or may not know me, and that's fine. Um, I'm Connie Bakshi, and I'm an artist that's based in LA. Um, I I've since I think 20, the end of 2021, I've been developing a lot of art that's based on my collaborations with AI and releasing those into the Web3 wilds as NFTs. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's that's kind of a little bit of context there. Sure. Absolutely. That's how, actually, that's how I found out about you. It was um, you did this, uh, you were part of that residency with uh, Vertical Crypto Art. And- oh, yeah, and that's whenever I first saw you because Danielle King was talking you up and then I saw it on that other stuff and I was like, oh, this is interesting. So, uh. Yeah, Danielle King's really rad. I, I love her to death. And um, I think the the friendship that we that we built, um, especially coming out of vertical crypto, is, is something that I'm going to cherish for a while. Mm. Um, but a lot of really, really great. It's a great program, great artists, um, great friends for life, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Cool. How did you get how did that happen for you? Break it down. It, that's, Break it down. That's, I mean, I feel like that's kind of like asking, like, how did you create this piece of art, right? <laughs> it, it doesn't happen instantaneously, right? <laughs> well, then tell us how, I mean, how did you get to the point? To give us a little bit about your story. Tell us a little bit about who you are, what your deal is, because, you know, I, I don't really know much, and, I, and I'm interested. I want to know. Sure. I, I think my, uh, a lot of my art practice is very, like, ontologically based. But to kind of give you guys the rundown, um, you know, I've lived many lives. I actually started out as a classical musician wow. for for 20 years of my life. Then I became a biomedical engineer and then um, an experiential designer. So <laughs> I, I started my artistic career really as a, as a transmedia artist, where my work was taking place in this experiential realm between the physical and the digital. So I would be doing anything from crafting objects to building these interactive spaces and performances, um, to even creating generative genetic music. Um, But really, I think the turning point in my artistic career came when the pandemic hit. And I think that was a come to Jesus moment for a lot of us, right? Uh, But for me specifically, I found myself shut off from 
the resources and the venues of making. And I really had to confront my practice, what I wanted to do and the questions I wanted to ask myself as a practice. Because for me, the art practice is about, a, it's about a constant state of inquiry. Mm-hmm. So I think my work with AI specifically came out of the isolation of the pandemic. Um, but also from this opportunity to work with some of the latest models at the time, AI models at the time, um, I was invited to join this Art Meets Tech AI incubator through my friend Phil Boshua, kind of a, a, a career entrepreneur, serial entrepreneur, mm-hmm. um, <clears throat> incredible technologist and creative. Um, but you know, as I was working with the models he was sharing with me, I went down this deep rabbit hole, right? And I really gravitated towards natural language processors embedded within um, GPT-3 and image synthesis models. Cool. Um, say, for instance, like guided diffusion, that that may be a, a model that some are familiar with. Um, now, uh, the reason I was really drawn to the language-based models is that I, I have this difficult relationship with language. Um, you know, having grown up in an immigrant household between two first languages, and it was really only when I first started working with AI that I found this new, not language, but a new vernacular um, to really start distilling and understanding these unspoken, these undefinable and invisible aspects of language. Um, and it's usually through this codification and decodification of the relationships within, within language that I'm able to parse out conversations and insights um, within the machine. And I think the visual work that I release, um, especially within Web3, is really the outcome of these recursive processes between text and image. Um, I think, once again, ontologically, uh, in the big picture of things, I I think a lot of my work stems from this post-colonial identity crisis, Mm -hmm. um, really finding ways to reconcile it uh, across past and future and then place it within this larger global and technological context. Mm -hmm. And that's a lot. There's a lot to unpack there. There's um, a lot to unpack there. I realize. <laughs> <laughs> so, I feel like I'm still unpacking myself. <laughs> yeah, and I imagine so. So, how did? Let's move back to how did you get? In, you got an invite to a to 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 a conference or or an incubator by um by someone. And how did that happen? Break that down. So, like, did he know that you were involved in that kind of world? Or, I mean, how did that? So at the time, I um, had been part of uh, another studio practice um, with whom I had a collaborator. Um, But then when the pandemic hit, you know, I uh, I was also taking on creative consulting work. Mm -hmm. And um, that was actually how I was introduced to Phil. Okay. um, creative, like strategic and creative consulting with him, but also he he knew that I came from an artistic practice. And when I was having this come to Jesus moment during the pandemic, um, I was kind of sharing with him what I was trying to do. And at that moment, that that's when he was like, oh, here, he was incredibly generous, like such an incredible spirit of generosity. And um, he was very, very happy to just put his technology in my hands Got just it. to see what I Okay. And so then he, so then in that situation, then it was more about like, here's what I'm working on, play with it. Right. And that's kind exactly. of, so here's a new tool. Here's some paint, right? <laughs> play, paint for it's me. Like, for go, go find yourself yeah. like here. <laughs> and, and so then through that, you were able to sort of start refining kind of like what your direction is about what you wanted, or did you kind of go into it already with a direction that you wanted it to make it fit into? 
I think I had to discover it. Okay. Honestly, because you know, I think a lot of the the AI outputs or outcomes at the time were either text based or these two D static images. I, I don't. We really hadn't even gotten into like animations, right? Um, and so, you know, for me, taking it, it was about first getting in conversation with the machine and understanding how AI thinks, right? Does it think like me? Does it not? Like, and really I had to throw out all my preconceived notions about what AI is and what it can do and just kind of poke until it showed me a spark of, of its capabilities. Um, and I think, so the outcomes were predominantly digitally native, 2D. And I, I think through the process of conversations and creating images, I started developing this very intimate relationship with AI. Mm -hmm. And in a lot of ways, I found like I found that I started to to merge with AI at the time. Interesting. Um, but I think concurrently, um, I think the imposition that I wanted to kind of bring into the relationship was, okay, knowing that these outputs and these outcomes artistically are going to be digitally native. How do I take my experience and history within um, dimensional realms and translate that into the 2D? Mm -hmm. How do you bring in tactile elements, visceral elements that evoke the senses as opposed to having sort of um, detachment via the, the window of the screen? Uh -huh. And so, so you already kind of had like a, a little bit of an idea and you were trying to make it, you were, you were trying to figure out a way to put that idea using this tool and then figure out what the idea could be from a much broader perspective and narrow it down, right? And, and what, how the tool could use that, how you could use that tool to do that. Yeah, and that was specifically in just trying to understand the medium of the technology, the medium yeah, of yeah. AI, right? Uh, but then at the same time, I was also trying to distill what were what was the conceptual um, narratives that I, what were they that I wanted to pursue? And that came out of the conversations with AI where it, it kind of became like these therapy sessions after a while where I would, I would, um, you know, just, uh, just dump on AI and say, okay, these are all the things I'm thinking about. This is what's been happening with my family and, and, and my life. And like, let me just give you a full like mind dump. And like, can you help me kind of parse this out and make sense of it? Um, and it, it was really through that, through the conversations, um, like in parallel with the the medium explorations that I started to see really interesting things happen um, with the images I was creating that tied to what was this emerging theme of, you know, the post-colonial identity yeah. crisis. Okay. And so then the, the, functionally then, so you were taking these things and then you were creating smaller prompts to get the visuals from those things where you were distilling it down or were you just downloading dumping all of that information and then getting one single image from all of that information functionally i tried a lot of different things mm -hmm. uh, sometimes there were phrases mm -hmm. sometimes there was a couple of words um that i would pull from the conversations and bring them into image synthesis the text to image models mm -hmm. um, and that but i found what was interesting is the more abstract the term or the phrase the more anomalous and um, unusual the images would be, more of more emotionally evocative, right? So I, I I remember early early on I was bringing very very specific phrases that painted very specific pictures into text to image uh, models, and it was giving me the it something that was 
clear, but not at all. Like that didn't evoke any sort of like emotion in me. Uh, but then I started playing around with word abstractions, double entendres, innuendo, um, you know, and, and bringing those from the conversations in. And that's when it, the magic happened. Uh -huh. That's when you started to really see the results you were looking for. Yeah, in a lot of ways, I had to break the language to break the machine. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's all, right? So you build rules and then you break them, right? That's kind of what art is about, right? You build rules for yourself and then you say, oh, I'm going to make this thing look like this thing. And then you're like, actually, I'm going to make it kind of, you know, I think at least that's what I've, for myself, I guess I make rule-based art. And I think that I always yeah. feel like most people do that. <laughs> There's something of a feedback loop that goes on, right? In, yeah. in how, what you're pulling out of the, uh, out of, um, the machine, what you're drawing out, what it's drawing out of you. And there's a conversation and dialogue that happens throughout in a, a creative process mm -hmm. in creating a, in creating an artwork. So in your artistic practice previously, were you exploring the same sort of ideas visually already? Were you already kind of exploring these ideas of working with this post-colonialism identity crisis stuff um, in the practice previous to the, using these things or? I think it, the idea was still in its formative stages, but there were definitely inklings and pieces of it that like when I look in retrospect, I'm seeing. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I think, first of all, I, you know, when I look at my, what I was thinking about then and what a lot of how my work manifests now, um, I was often thinking about the relationship between, or really looking at the the surface or, or the boundary where light hits surface. I think lighting becomes a really, really important, important part of my work. Mm -hmm. um, and when I, back then, I, I was thinking about how at the time I had a really immense love and appreciation for religious art, mm -hmm. like multicultural religious art, but specifically in the relationship or in how um, the light relationship between light, shadow, and surface ultimately defined the relationship between the human and the divine. And like seeing that kind of dichotomy, um, it, it's a binary essentially that exists and a hierarchy that exists that I think is very central to um, to a lot of colonial tenets, honestly. Mm -hmm. And like when I when I think about that, I feel like there's still elements of that in how I'm sculpting my pieces so of that thinking. What were you using before to to? to create these visually, what were you doing? Were you doing it like digitally? Were you making sculptures physically or what were you doing? Oh, I worked with all sorts of uh, media and materials. Uh, you know, I'm, I've always been of the, of the mindset that the more tools and material that I have in my, in my arsenal, yeah. <laughs> the, more, the more I can really delve into how each of these can bring life to a very, very specific concept. So at the time I, you know, I, I would be playing in uh, 3D rendering software. I, I played a lot in Rhino, uh, Rhino 3D, which is more of an architecturally based yep. program. But I would also um, do a little bit of work in um, Python. I played with the uh, entire Adobe Creative Suite. But materially, um, I was always interested in biological material. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe that comes from my own history as a biomedical sure, engineer. Yeah. But I, I, I think the there's just so something so evocative about skin and even hair. I think at the time, uh, the last project I did with that collective, with that collaboration, I talk about this uh, generative genetic music. And we were actually looking at how, um, you know, we were looking at the DNA within hair mm -hmm. and how, uh, you know, it actually retains a very specific type of DNA that 
only is passed down through the maternal lineage. So really through hair, the DNA in hair, you could essentially trace the trace back through the code to an original Eve. So we were looking at this idea of using DNA as the basis for like an algorithmic algorithmic music tracks. So that actually listen to a lullaby and connect with an original Eve. Um, Wow. That sounds awesome. Yeah. Did you you do it? (laughs) You know, I, we got to the point where, yeah, yeah. We had some really, really great tracks and, um, coming out of that process that were linked to specific DNA strands of like of our beta tests, right? And then that, but that at the time, that's when the pandemic hit. And I really had to kind of think about like, okay, do I really, is this really what I want to pursue further? Or do I need some time to kind of think about what I want? Sure. And so let's jump backwards. You 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 said you made music as a, you, you, as a profession for 20 years. I was, yeah, classical pianist classical and violinist, pianist. but predominantly in work with piano. And in, in what, like on, on, in, in orchestras or like doing solo shows or working as a, a session musician or how, what were you doing? It was more as a soloist. It was kind of a, a solo career, but I started when I was five and um, kind of showed a propensity for, for the craft. And, you know, I, I think I won my first state competition when I was nine and oh. then got rigorously pushed into the competition circuits. Oh. Um, but then by the time, by the time at the, actually really at the end of high school, so my, end of high school, I had to make the decision, like, do I want to pursue this professionally or do I want to try something else? And I think I was so, um, you know, I had enough understanding of how the classical music work world works, yeah. um, with its politics and its bureaucracy and, um, and, you know, which is actually, I think, in a lot of ways, very akin to the traditional art world um, that I felt like, oh, okay, maybe I need to take a step back, like retain these lessons learned and experiences of expression from the piano career and like just take take a lateral leap and mm-hmm. see where I am. Okay. And do you still use those? I mean, you said you made, this was a generative music project that you did with this evening. Was this, were you using the piano to create these sounds that then were being transported or what were you doing? I mean, were you using your previous uh, life as a musician in order to do this or what was the deal there? I think I at the time I, you know, so the, the generative music project was based on vocalized okay. tracks, right? Yeah. Um, because of the, I, I think the, the sound quality that we wanted to create, but also the, you know, the very earthy human aspect of it that we wanted to evoke. Um, but what I was bringing was this sense of musical theory and composition and understanding the different elements of music and how they go together. Um, and I think that's what I was able to bring in from my, my musical training um, and understanding ways to kind of break down those constructs to give you something more loose, right? Once again, breaking the rules to, mm-hmm. to work. Yeah, cool. Yeah, because, you know, a lot of people work with um, generative music or gener- music generative, you know, things and sometimes successfully, sometimes not so successfully. And one of the things I keep running into is that for people is it's like, it's, you have to have samples or you have to do things and sometimes it becomes bigger and, you know, it's harder for them to fit it into other projects. Have you ever thought about taking that project and continuing that project and releasing that as NFTs or is that like not, you know, or is that part, is that kind of aspect of your art making career done (laughs) and you've moved on to this other part now? I think I may, you know, I I don't think I'm going to develop 
that particular project further. In fact, when I when I left the collective, I essentially um, was totally cool with them running the project and like taking it in their okay. own direction. Yeah. But I think there are still a lot of things learned and themes um, that I'm I'm open to exploring down mm-hmm. the line. Yeah, that's re-exploring. Cool. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure that as you, I go through that too, right? I'll I'll totally stop doing something for a couple of years and then come back to it and be like, damn, that was a pretty good idea. Let me play around with that again for a bit. And I imagine that you'll probably do that on your own, but I just was more asking on that other, on the other side. So now that you're using mostly AI, like what is the, what do you find to be like the best part about how your practice has, has evolved? And what do you find to be most limiting about using AI specifically? Because one of the things that I find that people come across is like, well, it all looks kind of the same. Well, yours doesn't. I mean, I've seen what you're doing and it doesn't look like anything else that I'm looking at, which is cool. So that you've kind of got your on the plus side there. But what are the downsides of getting to that? And how do you find like, how is it difficult? These kinds of things. <laughs> I think it took a really long time to break from the homogeneity. Mm-hmm. I, um, but I think what's really fascinating about my own development as I've worked with AI is that I, I, I'm, I'm implementing, I'm finding that AI evokes a sense of meta thinking. So I'm constantly now thinking about my own thinking. Um, and I, <laughs> I think, is that, is that a little too like no, vague? It. No, I'm with you. No, go ahead. Keep going. Yeah. So it's like, okay, when I almost see, you know, I'm looking at the AI and how I interact with it as, as the point of inquiry in a lot of ways. Right. So how, you know, it's funny when I talk about like post-colonialism, you know, obviously hand in hand, there's the, the, the theme or the concept of otherhood. Right. So, you know, growing up in an existence of embodied otherhood, when I started when I embarked on this relationship with AI, it was suddenly like this moment of, oh wait, AI is the other. Like yeah. I'm looking at the other from the yeah. other side. Yeah, well. And now how am I interacting with the other? And what and what is it giving me in response? It's, it was really, it was really a mind fuck. Like <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally. Wow. But it, it's I think once again, this is one of the benefits of, you know, trying to find anomalies in the response in the machine is that it's it's it breaks your own brain and it rewires it right mm-hmm. um in a way that i think it, it creates these synapses and connections that maybe you wouldn't have arrived at naturally or uh, on your own um i think downsides I, there's a lot there's a lot that uh people have talked about in, in various circles obviously there's the notion of bias when you're working with off the shelf models that have all these image set, uh, data sets that you, you don't know where they're coming from and what are the the intellectual property laws around that i mean that's certainly a huge issue yeah, right sure um and i think inherently that that points to kind of a a reshuffling of the creative and labor economy, right? Um, And, but these are all things that are really incredibly important to think about. Um, But concurrently, it also pushes us towards this notion of like, okay, well, how can I now customize the process, customize and develop my own models with AI that can give me non-homogenous outputs. Um, So in a lot of ways, the pros and the cons go hand in hand. How do you see that happening? How do you, how do you, I mean, like I went to a talk not too long ago and one of the things that they brought up was like the, when, when 
trying to depict people of color or people from other races, you know, like how difficult it was to find things that weren't totally stereotypical or, you know, like are totally like just over the top ways of, of depicting a specific, you know, race, you know, or something. And, and how over time it took them, you know, millions or hundreds of thousands of iterations to get to a point where they felt comfortable saying that this is what the person, you know, that this would be. How do you feel like, is this, is this something that is should actively be happening amongst people? Or do you think that the model over time is just going to do it because people are actively doing, because people are doing that? I mean, does that question make sense? <laughs> Cause what I'm trying to ask is how does this happen? How does it, how does it get to where we're not just giving these like super stereotype, you know, getting this, these results, how do we get there? I mean, obviously we need a diversity of voices involved in creating these data sets, but I think more importantly, we need a diversity of our own perspective, right? Um, and I think for me, that's what's been the really, a very, very powerful aspect of working with AI. Um, maybe I'm trying to think of the best way to answer this because it's a complicated question, it, right? It, totally. Absolutely. And, and it's a tough one that I've, you know, I've, I've been grappling with the thought process around it for quite some time now, you know, and like try to, because when I, you know, whenever Mid Journey was first released, I started seeing a bunch of people playing with it and all the images looked the same and everything was the same. And I was like, this is stupid. I don't know. I would, I'm not going to play around with this. But other people did and they continued to play with it and they started like getting, and they started parsing out really interesting stuff, right? But it took a little while to start seeing some of those more interesting things, you know? I also started noticing, shit, all these white people look the same. You know, everybody has these, has these crazy looking eyes. Like what the hell's the deal with that? You know, why, 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 what are we doing here? And then, you know, some people started doing more interesting, um, uh, people started doing more interesting, like, um, experiments and, or projects that kind of started delving into these ideas. And as they yeah. started doing that, they started getting deeper into how those ideas, you know, how they can shape and affect those ideas. And I'm, and I'm wondering, and then it started getting me thinking, like, how do we get past that? You know, how do we get past these bias, the, the, the bias within AI? How do we, wh wh what's the point, you know, that, where do we get there? I mean, ultimately, these biases are all stemming from data set contributions. And it, I think there, what's, the, in the landscape of AI, there's some really interesting, um, not separations, but self-organizations that are happening, right? Yeah. Right. Uh, so at the individual level, artists are confronting these biases with their own custom data sets. Right. So, you know, it's kind of speaking to what you were talking about, using the bias as a way to uh, highlight um, the issue at hand, the perceptual bias, the cognitive bias at hand. But then, you know, the company, there are companies, massive corporations that have... Um, some of them may have bought like their own proprietary images and, you know, I, and they, they're creating mm -hmm. their, their own world based on the data set world of AI and outputs based on their data sets. Right. And so where ah, this is, this is just where it, it, there's, there's just a lot of things going on um, at the same time. And I feel like there needs to be a lot of intermingling. Right. So I talked about the division of the creative economy and the reshuffling of it. And I think what could potentially happen is, you know, based on the custom data sets of individual creators and artists, um, they, those artists may ultimately license out their content and their assets and their work to 
larger studios and companies, right? And so that 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 becomes an intermingling of like the different confrontations of bi- confrontations of bias. Um, that's maybe one particular example, but I it's it's going to be a protopian crawl. I don't think it's going to be an instantaneous. Um, no. Flip of a switch. No. Where it's something that is solved, but I think what. Uh, in my own practice, I'm uh, I, like I'm cognizant of all the th- these things that are happening in context, and all I can do is really leverage the power of the the synthetic network and mind to first break down my own bias, and hopefully in my art, my, my own artwork, maybe help, uh, have my audiences confront their own biases. Right. That's one way of trying to do that. Right. Like you can try and pull that. Um, in there and so that's another tough one <laughs> trying to get audience trying to get the audience to see that you're trying to get them to confront a bias is also quite difficult because you know you're not playing into there you're not uh you know there's no confirmation bias going on there <laughs> it's actually no, no, I and i think there's a lot of there's um different ways to do this and i, I certainly have not i'm not gonna you know claim to find a magic formula but sure. I, at least i can see within myself i'm you know when I work with AI, I find it's it's actually a lot like the the conceptual Ansible device. Do you know what that is? No, I the don't. Ansible. It's um, it's uh, it's kind of prevalent in sci-fi, but these this an in, this idea of instantaneous light speed communication across massive distances, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. But you know, I'm seeing AI as the, the, this Ansible where you can connect where you can now communicate instantaneously with different versions and times and spaces of the documented human experience. Right. Um, and, you know, if we're seeing like these different perspectives, quote unquote, data sets, what we're, I think what we've, ex- how we experience them is like these singular planes of existence and perception running in parallel, but not intersecting, but there are inst- really great moments in working with AI where it can start, creating these wormholes and poking holes through the different planes to find the connective tissue. And it's more about finding the commonality, right? Mm -hmm. Than it is about like Bible thumping the difference. (laughs) Bible thumping the difference. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) I'm going with it. I'm going, I love it. I love it. It's great. No, that's, that's a really good way of looking at that. And that's, um, yeah, I mean, it's a, you know, it's a tough question because it's a tough one to think about. I, I, you know, whenever I'm, I'm stupid with this stuff. Like I don't play around with it at all. Like, you know, I'm kind of a Luddite and my, luckily I've had, I've worked with a person pretty closely for the last few months on a project. So I kind of have an understanding of how some of this stuff swims. Right. And part of the conversation that he and I were having was, you know, well, we want to make these things that be, that are sculptural. And weirdly the AI would just like randomly, if we told it, no, if we didn't say anything, it would just throw faces in it. Right. It would just be like, be like these things. It would be like a a crazy glass thing. That's all glass. And then all of a sudden there's this face going screaming because I guess it wants, (laughs) it wants to get out of that glass so bad. (laughs) And, And it's funny that this is what it makes the decision to do. Right. And so like one of the, one of the things that we were talking about is like, how do you get that? How does that happen? And why does that happen? And he was like, I guess it's because people want to see faces, you know, and that's kind of a big part of like what, you know, we, whenever we look at pictures, we look at, do I know anybody in that picture? You know, and we're always like doing this, like, you know, facial recognition thing. And we're trying to like solve this kind of stuff. 
And I think that that's what AI is trying to, you know, do for us too, is like, because it knows that most of the things that we've been posting have a face in it. So it wants to, you know, it wants to throw a face in this thing and make it look like, oh, that could be Tom, you know, <laughs> hanging out in that glass <laughs> or whatever. <laughs> so, yeah, there's, there's definitely anthropocentrism, like a human focus um, in a lot of like the off the shelf AI models. Um, and I think that can actually be a really, I, I think that, veers dangerously close to that the biases clearly that we've been talking about right um and it it's a shame though i, I think that's why I, I i'm drawn to a lot of the ai artists who are working in a very not let's not say metaphor because that can that can kind of be a, a dangerous term but they're looking at applying the ai mind and translating artwork in to look at uh, laterally look at humanity, right? But without looking at faces. So like, is it about looking at the the uh, life forms that are not human, right? Is right. it lo about looking at not just, once again, maybe looking at the non-human other mm -hmm. um, as subject matter. Right. Um, I think that's where really, really interesting things start to happen. Yeah. If, if everything we do to kind of pull away from the human faces, like when in these image, the text to image models, I think is, um, that's where a lot of the most interesting thing happens. Yeah. But, and then how do we, but then, okay. So what do we, what do we do? <laughs> what do we do as like people who like just, you know, my nephew, for example, how do I get him to, you know, how do I get him to start being more inclusive in a way that he looks at things using through the lens of AI, what is it, what, what do we do to, to, to get that kid, you know, what do we do to get those young people who are just now finding that these, these text to image things, how do we show them that, you know, not everybody looks like that, <laughs> you know, not everybody has to have this sort of like, you know, stereotypical way of look cliched version of them, of, of, of these people that, that these off the shelf brand things spit out. What do we do there? How do we handle that? I, you know, I wish I had the answer to that. I really do. But that's something I'm confronting myself as a parent of a four-year-old who's now getting very heavily involved with um, with digital devices, right? Inevitably, he AI will be a part of his life and his generation. Um, and I don't know. I think that's part of my exploration now, really, just trying to understand, like, how do we... How do we introduce this shift in perspective, right? And, you know, I see a lot of my friends' kids who are already playing in, in AI, and they're they're just having a blast with it, right? They're typing in exactly what they want to see, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Uh, based on the narratives that they know, based on what they know. So maybe is it maybe this idea of pushing the curiosity of kids, who kids inherently have, like, an immense curiosity. Can we cultivate that in such a way that they're starting to push beyond what they don't know, right, and ask questions that they don't know? um and asked to see things that they haven't seen before well, that's i think that's a skill and i think that's a, a mindset it is but whenever the ai is spitting out and every time they put like a group of people at a party and it's just a bunch of white blonde-haired people you know how does that i mean how do we handle i mean that's the question i think really you know like how do we get it so that the model is not just spewing out this thing so that you know people who aren't blonde-haired white people <laughs> whenever they get it they're like well i don't know anybody in that party you know <laughs> i don't know anybody that looks like those people there's people all look like barbie you know I don't, I'm, not, I'm not barbie how do we you know how do we what, what, what do we gotta do i know it has to happen at a corporate level i get it you know i mean I, i'm not necessarily i mean think about what you're doing exactly right now you're saying okay you're you're seeing an output in your mind and you're asking the questions yeah right 
kids aren't may not ask those kinds of questions because they don't have that experience. So how can we okay? How can we look at this input output relationship yeah. and teach a kid and cultivating kids this idea to ask the questions? Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. How do we? Do that, that? I think that's that's all we, where we can really start. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I guess um, so. I guess that, that we have to start there. We have to start educating the children straight away, start doing this, you know, like be be cognizant of that. But that's, again, takes it's, a lot. But it's not, about, it's not about like imposing this. Uh, I mean, there's certainly like critical race theory and things like that, but I'm, I'm just more thinking about like, okay, so you, you get this output in an image and you, you're seeing this, right? How does this compare to what you're seeing in real life? Like, in having that singular input output become a dialogue right with the with kids mm -hmm. um so it's it's more about just constantly embedding the urge to question what they're seeing right and i think that's something that even like we've had an, we it's been an issue since like the rise of the internet yeah. like web one right yeah sure like how do you want to just accept information that's spewed out to you? Or are you going to question it? It's the same exact thing with every single new technological platform, yeah. especially one that's um, imbued with so much information. Mm -hmm. Yeah, totally. Absolutely. Yeah. I, yeah. Again, that was a nice little jaunt to the side. <laughs> We're all about the meandering conversations here. I'm here for it. <laughs> yeah. That's kind of what I like. That's what I like doing. I like to just kind of jump from point to point A to point B. Hey, so earlier we were discussing something. You, the way you told me, so you had this music career, then you did this biomedical engineering, and then you had, you know, then you, you went into making art and art practice and stuff. Throughout all of this thread, there's a creative aspect because obviously being a being a, a, a musician involves math, but it also involves creativity. Being a biomedical engineer involves math, but it also involves creativity because the best engineers are super creative people. And, um, and then art, obviously, you know, at this point. So do you find that your parents fostered that sort of mindset in you? Or do you find that your parents kind of pushed you in specific directions? Or did your upbringing in some way, did these things like influence how, did your parents and your and the people around you influence your, your path and your movement? Oh, of course. I mean, I think as a kid, you know, you don't, you're not always, you don't always have a lot of freedom to decide because you don't have the body of knowledge or experience to decide what's necessarily best for you. Or sometimes, I mean, some kids do, don't, don't get me wrong. Some kids kind of have that natural inclination. I don't know that I was, um, you know, and, and the fact is I grew up, um, you know, with the, you know, I hate to say this, but stereotypical tiger parents who were very much pushing for this notion of long-term stability in my life. They, they were, they wanted to foster a sense of independence and financial stability um, for my long game, right? So obviously the introduction of um, a cultural enrichment, um, you know, through through music and and ultimately with the engineering, I think they were pushing for me to become a, a medical doctor at the time. <laughs> but I was like, ah, I'm more into like hands-on stuff. Like, I think I got to do the engineering thing. Mm -hmm. um, so, I, you know, there were aspects of them trying to push me into something. And there were certainly points where I rebelled and but I think ultimately, whatever, wherever I landed, I kind of had, I found my own voice and my own, I, I made my own decisions within those that I think ultimately led me to like my own independent choices. Mm -hmm. I guess that's the best way to put it. 
I mean, it was. I, I drew. I drew from those those experiences what I wanted to draw out of them, not necessarily what my parents wanted me to draw out of them. Yeah, but did you? Were you receptive to them when, it, or were they receptive to your decision making process? And were you receptive to their critiques about that? Meaning, like when you told your parents, "Hey, this is what I want to do. I want to be. I want to. I want to compete." And then be professional classical musician. Were they like, yeah, totally go for that? Or were they like, no, nah, you need to be doing these other things? And, you know, I think they felt like, oh, you know what? This is just going to be a hobby. You just got, you know, whatever you do, just do it really, 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 really well. Yeah. And, you know, uh, but with music, it's, it's not a vocation. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, 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 you know, it's just for fun. Mm-hmm. Right. But I happen to like want to kind of push it as far as I could take it. Um, but it just happened to be that the, at course, the tail end of that, when I actually had to make a decision, I'd had enough experience to decide, oh yeah, you know what? I don't think this is a good direction for me to continue on in the long run because of the nature of the industry and the classical music world and the rigorous training, et cetera. So, but that's the, the, the specific part, but like in, in terms of like how the creativity was flowing and how you moved in from that point into how you got into this, are they receptive to your particular, are they, do they respect what you do now? Are they into it? It took them a while to really understand what I do now and to be receptive to me as an artist. I, I think, um, it took them until my thirties, like, you know, of me kind of going through my meandering career choices to recognize that I've always been an artist in my thinking and my approach to solving problems. Um, and I think I distinctly remember my dad saying maybe in my mid thirties, he's like, you know, I really should have just, you know, not pushed the whole like medicine and medicine, medical doctor kind of thing. Cause really like you were meant to be an artist. I should have just let you Totally go like all in on that. Yeah. But do you That's feel like but th- it's good that he did that though, because you, it, it informed you differently, right? So you have like a different, it did. this is, the and that's part. exactly what I told him too. Yeah. I was like, you know what? Like, I actually love the fact that like, I wandered, I wandered through life and it's, and it's opportunities because I ultimately, it shaped the way I think it's shaped the way I understand the world. Um, and ultimately I had to kind of, you know, trip and fall and pick myself up to decide like, okay, this is who I am. This is really what I want to do. Mm-hmm. Right. I had those experiences. I don't, I, I don't think I'd be the artist I am today without those, those wanderings, the winding road. This kind of goes to that hybridization thing we were talking about earlier. Like, you know, off beforehand was that I was trying to, this, I was kind of trying to parse into this. Um, and so like sort of because of what we were talking about earlier and how like, all these things have informed you and, and put you into this position to your parents and what you've done and how you are and the person that you've grown up. And you you said you download all of that into your art, into the AI. And so the AI has this picture of you <laughs> that, that is like all of these things, you know, and like created this, uh, you know, this, this kind of like profile of who you are and creates art for you in that, in that way, because it's given, you know, you've given it all this information. This approach, this hybrid approach towards of art making is also like kind of a really like key point about who you are as an artist, right? Because you have like all of these other data points that brought you to this point to bring you to this to this place to create this thing that allows you to use this tool to understand how this tool and have the conversation with this tool to do that. So should people be afraid of it? Is it gonna kill them? <laughs> AI? 
yeah. that came out of nowhere. <laughs> oh, you sprung that on me. You're tricky. Not, not uh, tricky. It's not tricky. <laughs> is, is, are we going to be bowing down to our AI overlords, according in, according to Connie? I think that's uh, that's too simplistic of an outcome. <laughs> it's, it's too singular. Um, it's going to be way more complex than that. <laughs> it's much, much more complex than that. But, um, you know, I think AI is always going to be subject to human intervention at the conception point, right? At, at the point in which we're interacting, but also at the point in which we're inputting the data. So in a lot of ways, the AI, the way the AI thinks is always going to mirror in a lot of ways the way we think. You know, we talk about the singularity a lot. Um, and it's like, it's it's our, often framed at this as this like autonomous self-awareness. But I think because the machine is subject to the pa cognitive patterns that we share with it, that we know, right? Yeah. The data sets that we know and, and the way of thinking that we know, I think it can only ever evolve into the sentience or overlord <laughs> thinking as much as we do, you yeah. know? And, you know, right now, I, to be honest, I question our own sentience as human beings. Sure. Like in, in terms of like the understand that self-awareness, right? Yeah, yeah sure. Um, but I think the beauty of, but that is actually the, there's a beauty in the increasing entanglement with the machine because we're evolving too, right? As much as the machine's evolving, we're evolving too. And I think a lot of that stems on that feedback loop um, that exists between us. Um, so I think instead of kind of thinking like gearing towards this direction of like, oh, uh, AI is going to move beyond us. I, I actually want to make the argument that it will always move. And I would love for it to continue moving in parallel with us, but, but that, we and the machine continue evolving. Um, but what's what I'd love to see is our own increased collective human sentience that comes out of this relationship. Mm -hmm. Yeah, very, very good. Very good. Do you listen to Holly Herndon and Matt Dryhurst? Do you ever listen oh, to Oh, so good. So good. Yeah. Like I, Holly and, and Matt are like uh, among like the group of like OG um, artists working with AI who are really able to do like touch on very provocative themes and really shift paradigms of thought. So absolutely. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. I, no, no further questions. No further questions. I, no. <laughs> Pass the test. Judgment made. <laughs> no, no, no. It was more just a matter of like, because of the, you know, Holly and Matt are always, for those that don't know them, Holly and Matt have been focused on, on thinking about the implications of AI and how it's going to affect humanity for quite some time already. A lot longer than Midjourney and ChatGPT have been around. And, yes. they, and they have, they've had a very, and they've had a very strong voice in, in all of that. And a lot of what Connie just said here is, is echoes a lot of that sentiment and, a, and, and, and is a, it's a very smart way of putting a lot of these things that are kind of floating out there and it very concise and, and, and I really appreciate uh, that sort of candidness as well as you know very um, thought-provoking and thoughtful responses it's very good um, to, to have that kind of conversation hey you know what we're, we're we you you you've given me a um a pretty hard deadline of, <laughs> <I'm sorry. laughs> uh, of, a, of a couple of more minutes and so i just want to you know wind this down here and say thank you very much for coming on i absolutely appreciate it and the conversation has been fantastic i've had so much fun um i yeah this is a blast like 
let's just do it again like like sometime like we could do a virtual coffee date next time in berlin i'm in berlin let's hang you know i'm ready i'm actually i'm ready to go to your mountain house that's actually what i'm oh yeah dude come hang seriously there's plenty of space i need to leave berlin for a little out with my uh, my four-year-old for attention yeah hey everybody thank you very much for listening this has been a little truncated version of uh arbitrarily deterministic here with connie bakshi and again thank you very much connie for being on the show today and uh for those of you still listening um yeah thanks a lot for being here next week i've got uh, matt delorier on so thanks a lot <laughs>